Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 22nd, 2013. This is episode 1135 of the Survival Podcast, and I have uh, Austin Lehman uh, hanging on. We're going to be doing an interview with him in just a moment on uh, prepping from a teen's point of view. We're going to talk about all kinds of cool stuff today, how uh, Austin got involved. He's been in prepping for four years now. He's only 18. That means he started when he was 14, gardening, chickens, completing EMT training, doing all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, for you young folks, how do you get parents interested in this? How do you get your friends interested in this? School-friendly disaster kits and uh, what it's like to be an 18-year-old that's aware looking at the economy. We'll do all that and more with Austin in just a bit. Before I even do the housekeeping today, though, I want to say something just in case kind of thing. Um, this is actually uh, uh, the 21st that I'm recording this on, including the intro. Usually I do an uh, interview and then I, uh, I do the intro for it the next day when I publish the show. Um, I've done this now twice. I've done three shows today. Uh, this will be the third one, actually. The, uh, the other one's already set to go out on Thursday. That's tomorrow for you guys here in the show is, you know, as soon as it was published today. Um, as I said on my show Tuesday, I, I don't know what is coming for Texas and, uh, I was looking to help the people in Moore, Oklahoma at the same time. Um, because these two shows are recorded in advance, you won't, if, you know, something went on in Texas, you won't hear anything about it, including if something went on on our own property. We'll keep updates out by Facebook and Twitter and things like that in the blog as, as long as we can. I expect that, you know, the shows, these two shows will go on no matter what because, well, they're already put out there. My gut right now is that we on the western side of the Metroplex will be spared the worst of this crap, but you never know. And we've made our preps already to move into a safe area if we have to with the dogs and the cats. Um, if anything has transpired that has caused uh, severe damage throughout North Texas, the reason you don't hear me talking about it is because I don't care or I'm ignoring it. Uh, it's because I've done this show in advance. And I just wanted to kind of put that out there because I'm looking at the weather forecast and the atmosphere today, and I'm, I'm seeing another bad day at some point. Um, I, again, I think there will be in, in clear sailing, sailing with the weather here for about a week and a half minimum after this one. But uh, this is a gnarly system moving through. And, uh, again, if anything you know dramatic has transpired, you don't hear about it today on the air. That's why. Before we get to uh, our show, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. Look, if you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine, uh, get over to BackyardFoodProduction.com and get Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD, uh, growing your groceries, and she'll show you how to do just that. She'll show you how to turn that backyard into a food production machine. Everything from your carbohydrate crops to your vegetable crops to your protein, uh, chickens, rabbits, you name it. Everything you need to know to make your backyard a food production machine. And even though she's on a fairly large acreage, most of what they do is done on about an acre. And these techniques can be scaled down and work in a quarter-acre backyard or a 100 acres out in the country. It's up to you. But this is a DVD that belongs in your preparedness library, backyardfoodproduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, one of the three angles in the triangle of being a responsible and effective gun owner. Own a gun, have the ammunition for it, and the linchpin that holds two together is the operator, the gun operator. And that means you need good quality training, some of the best training you'll ever get anywhere. You'll get from Fortress Defense Consultants and Frank Sharp Jr.'s cadre of professional instructors who are not just instructors but professional students. They take courses every year themselves to, to continue to improve their ability and uh, become better teachers, better students, 
and to help you become a better student and a better proficient user of your firearms, along with training that will teach you how to save lives, not just take lives. I believe that a balanced uh, school that teaches firearms training should be teaching first response, uh, first aid, and life-saving techniques as well. If you're ever somewhere you have to deploy a weapon, uh, it's, it's likely that there may be people injured as well. People often say, well, in that shooting, had there been an armed citizen around, how many lives might have been saved? And I agree with that. That's why I'm the reason I think you should carry. But the other side of that, I often think if there had been people that had trained, uh, trained themselves medically to uh, deal with life-threatening situations, how many lives might have been saved? You can get both of those at Fortress Defense Consultants, available at Fortress Defense.com. Next up, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you uh, join the support brigade, you'll support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. You'll get a lot of great discounts, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. If you send me an email before you join with service discount in the subject line and send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, I'll send you a discount code uh, that'll give you a, a discount on your membership and save you even more as long as you do it before, not after you join. And uh, just tell me in one or two sentences who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. I also extend that discount to firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, first responders in that vein as well. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping uh, wrapped up, and it's my good pleasure to introduce Mr. Austin Lehman. Austin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, tell people a little bit about yourself. You're, you're one of our younger guests. I mean, I mean, I think, I don't think you're the youngest. I think I've had a couple, uh, people a little bit younger than you on for a few things, but, uh, you're definitely in the, uh, that, that group of folks that are a little bit younger than we usually get on air and, uh, probably younger than most people that start thinking about preparedness at all. So, um, kind of what's your background on that, Austin? Well, pretty much I am your um, average California kid. I grew up in a um in a very large town. Um I didn't have any prior exposure to the movement until I was about 14 when I um found out a lot about the disasters that were going on because I really didn't pay attention to the news or anything until around then. Okay. And was there anything about that time that kind of like poked you the wrong way or something like that that made you decide maybe you needed to do something about it? I found out about our national debt. That kind of got me really into it. Because, At 14, yeah. you were paying attention to the debt. Yeah. Um, well, um, I, I figured out since I'm pretty much inheriting a flawed system, I better get into it and try to fix up it as much as possible. Okay. And so that was kind of your first thing that, that kind of woke you up. And, and when you first got into preparedness, what were some of like you know, what were some of the first steps you kind of took? Well, um, like um, every kid, I pretty much went on the internet and tried to find out as, as much as possible about the subject. And that's kind of how I got really got started. But what, the first thing I actually got was um, some canned goods that didn't really last the year. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, the first thing that really got me into it was when we had a blackout, and then I decided to start prepping right then. So it was a blackout. Was it a storm or? Um, it was a rainstorm slash a thunderstorm. Okay. Yeah, and we had 
whole town blackout, and no one could buy anything from the store. And when you could buy it, you couldn't use um, a credit card to buy it anyway, so there's no point. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you were kind of coming into this, did you know were parents on board with you, or were they part of it, or were you kind of on your own at first? Or uh, For the first year, it was kind of just me, but I after a while, I convinced them. Okay. Did I mean since you started doing this, has any you know other like minor thing come up, like a minor outage or something, and it's paid off, and that maybe made them a little bit more interested? Uh, it was more of a, a medical issue than the actual storm. <laughs> uh, my mom, she got her head hit with a door, and I had to perform a, a minor a medical fix. Okay. But in fact, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, that was pretty much really got them into the medical part. Um, what got them really into the whole food thing was the whole job atmosphere. The job atmosphere? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's watching the economy implode in 2009 that kind of maybe shook them a little bit. Yeah, that and the housing market and the uh, bailouts and all that stuff going on. So I mean, you guys were in California. You guys got really hit with the with the housing market. I mean, that was one of the. I'd say it was probably California, Arizona, Florida, and the Northeast that all got the biggest ding on that. That probably shakes the person who always was told your house was your largest and best investment. Yeah, that was pretty much how it was. That and um, that and cars, pretty much. Okay. Okay. So. What are some things that you would advise a person that's kind of in your age group as far as uh, is what they can do? Because obviously, well, now you're 18, right? So yeah. now you're in the eyes of the law. You're a man. If you wanted to, you could move out. Mm-hmm. If you've got the right job, you can you can pretty much do whatever you want. But for the last four years, you've still been a minor in the mm-hmm. eyes of the law. You have to live at home. You, you, you can only do so much. You can only earn so much because you're still in school. So what are some steps that a person in that position whose parents aren't necessarily on board yet do for themselves and for their family? Well, um, you can always do the whole uh, free system of going on the Internet, and if you have the um, ink, you can always print off a lot of information because um, information is power. Okay. Um, a Dollar Tree, if you have any money, is probably the best place to go. You can buy flashlights, candles, even a can opener, but, you know, there's not good stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. There's actually one of one of the guys that listens to the show and has been on the air is, is putting together a book called The Dollar Store Survivalist with all of the, you know, dollar stores and thrift store items that can be purchased for a few bucks that can be used for basic preparedness. I don't necessarily think that the best way – for everybody to be prepared is to go cheap on everything, but I think when you're getting started, mm-hmm. having something is better than having nothing. Yeah. Um, as an example, I actually just went over to my a neighborhood store, a thrift store, and I picked up five $3 books or around there for about a quarter. Okay. And it's a good way. Sure, you don't know what you're going to get until you actually go there, but if it's a walking distance, it's, it's really worth it, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's another thing that older folks forget, that there was a time in your life where you just didn't jump in the car anytime you wanted to, uh, especially before your driving age, right? Yeah. So, 
you've had to use the shoe leather express on a few things, I guess. Yeah. Averagely, I walk about five miles. <laughs> okay. That's a good thing uh, overall. Yeah. And it's actually a really good system because I've, you know, before I even got into this, I was a little chubby, but uh, not as much anymore. Yeah, that'll that'll do it for you. I mean, I think that's important, too, to understand that, that I don't expect everybody that's into preparedness to be a super athlete or anything, but taking care of yourself from a physical fitness standpoint is pretty important. And it can be just walking, but um, I'd imagine you probably feel better in general uh, if, if you've shed some weight. Yeah, I do feel a lot lighter. Like, I feel like my movements aren't as um, stiff as it used to be. Yeah. It's definitely a good feeling. Now, what about your friends? Like, do you have friends that are, are kind of on this path, too? Or do they all think you were nuts when you first started doing it? Or do you have to keep it on the down low for a while? Or, I mean, you know, what what do you think of, like, because we always talk about building community. Well, when you're, when you're 18, your community are people that are, like, 16 and 19. Well, my friends are into camping a lot, and... Uh-huh. So I kind of get – I could get them into it, but they're kind of iffy about it right now. i got to show them examples on the Internet uh, to why to prepare because they have no clue really what to do. Yeah. But um, the only people I really know that are close to me are – I have a couple of family members that aren't really preparedness people, but they're country people that – have a lot of the old school roots and feels. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's half the battle. If you can get people on the on the path to homesteading, prepping becomes part of it. Yeah, that, that is really, really true. Um, most people think that, um, you know, preparing is just about, you know, the whole bunker scenario. But um, as you said before, a lot of people, um, you know, I survive a hurricane, it'd just be easier if they prepared before. <laughs> sure, sure. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things. And where you're at, you guys have earthquakes, you have landslides, you have forest fires. I mean, that's, I think, a lot of people look at something like, you know, the West Coast and say, well, you don't really worry about hurricanes. But what I've always been trying to teach people, I don't care where you are, there's something you have to worry about. We're going to have our heads down here in about... 45 minutes from right now because we have uh, major uh, severe storms on our way, mm-hmm. uh, and the, there's threats everywhere of one sort or another. Yeah, like one of them here is definitely crime. You know, you don't think crime in California. You, you think sun and yeah. and palm trees. Yeah. But actually, um, where I'm at, we're, we're not the crime capital, but we do have um, crime a lot. We actually hear about three cop cars every three hours or so going yeah. off. Yeah. Um, it's mostly minor stuff, but it has gone up a lot more since 2008. Yeah, I think whenever the economy starts to take a beating, people become more uh, desperate, and then you have a, a rise in crime because people are willing to commit criminal activity that maybe they weren't quite so much before. Um, I think the other thing is, and I think California is really bearing the brunt of this, there's a lot of places where you just have less cops on the street because your state is as dumb as every state is right now. California's been a little bit dumber with their money than most, and they're trapped in a lot of different locations. And it's not just 
the state, there's a lot of local governments out there that are strapped on funds as well. That is really true. Um, I totally agree we should – okay, I'll rephrase that. Um, I don't think we can fix the budget. It's just there's not enough resources anymore to support what we need. Now, we have a really luxury government. Um, I think it's the best way to say it without going into cur- a curse words. But um, example, we have, as you probably know, the one of the worst gun um, gun laws in America. Correct. And that kind of that with the economy, it just seems where all the famous people go or all, all the politicians go. There's not a lot of guns, or the gun laws there are really, really rigid. Which, of course, makes people less able to defend themselves and creates an environment that's more conducive mm-hmm. to crime. I, I think if you took the average criminal and said, I'm not going to tell you anything except the location, you have to go break into a house, <clears throat> people are going to be home, you can either do it in Los Angeles, California, or Austin, Texas, that most criminals would say, well, if I ain't got any choice, uh, I'm going to pick L.A., because there's a hell of a lot more likelihood to run into the two barrels of a double barrel inside the, the Austin, Texas home. And I think that as much as politicians want to play that down, that the criminal element knows this. They know where people are armed. And I'm not saying crime doesn't happen there, because it does. We have crime in Texas. But I think that the criminal element has to think a little bit more, because it's not, you know, I might end up in jail tonight. It's I might end up dead on, on, on a front porch tonight, and nobody might even care that I'm dead. It might just be like, well, you pick to stay with the castle doctor, and sorry about that. You know, goodbye, go out. Yeah, that, that, that really is true. Um, we don't, um, are, okay, in my town, we actually have a fairly large gun culture for California. Uh, every NRA dinner gets sold out, which is crazy in California. Um, we have like two firing ranges in a driving distance. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I think that California gets a rap as being a, a, a place where people don't have guns, but it's not really a place where people don't have guns. It's a place where it's more difficult to have many different types of guns due to regulation. It, if you look at a state the size of California and with a huge population, if even 20% or 30% are true firearms enthusiasts, that's a lot of gun owners. It's just that it's not enough to, to outweigh uh, the, the counterbalance at the voting block. Yeah, I say about 40% of the people in California may not be completely gun, you know, a pro-gun, but they're not anti-gun. They actually would switch if they had more of a view of it. Yeah. There's like 10% that are hardcore um, on both sides, and there's 40% on the other side that is kind of anti-gun, but not really. Yeah. The, the uninformed are generally the biggest problem with keeping gun freedom around. It's it's the person that's convinced that I, I remember having a conversation with a guy from Massachusetts and it was when the original assault weapons ban was about to expire and we were talking about it and he's like, Well, I've gotta believe there's something that makes those guns more powerful or whatever and I'm like, Why do you think that? He goes, Because they're assault weapons. He said, but, you know, the average deer rifle is far more powerful than the average AK or AR. He didn't even know what AK and AR was. I had to explain it. But that's the guy that's not necessarily opposed to you having a gun. He just will go along with the vote, and he won't vote somebody out of office over it. 
And I, I think California is full of those people. Yes, I really do think that. Um, I think that um, the whole assault weapons thing here is definitely a lot because we, um, we are pretty much told not in a direct sense, but that assault weapons should be completely banned more than they are now. Huh. It's not a direct a talk like I'm on the news or the media, but it's yeah. kind of like a, um, an undertone. Got you. Would you say that the anti-gun message is heavy in your school systems out there? Um, I'm homeschooled. <laughs> okay. But okay, so. um, a lot of my friends say so. Actually, there is actually a couple of the homeschool sites that have a, um anti-gun backfield to it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, huh. My mom, she's she's actually pretty pro-gun for a for a mom. <laughs> I got you. But got you. um, so she kind of avoids those sites. Yeah. But um, but my friends tell me that um, even though it's not a complete security state or in schools, it's still looked down upon. Like there's no rifle clubs or pistol clubs here. Yeah. Really? I mean, I think there actually is one in the whole state. I'm not quite sure, though. But wow. um, um, it, it's definitely looked down upon. It's like uh, I got like drugs to the uh, mainstream here. So the, 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 if, you, if you think of the, the, the stigma around a dope, it's the same stigma around firearms, even legally owned, rightfully possessed firearms in the, the, the culture they're creating in the youth culture there. Uh, yes, to a certain extent, um, I, I think that drugs are definitely looking better here because we're California, and you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think yeah. I think that the guns are kind of replacing, to a certain extent, the whole anti-drug mentality. So you go from anti-drug message to anti-gun message. Great, that's a. That's a great thing. And I, I think the drug thing gets overplayed with California, too, because there's a difference between PCP or meth and, and pot. I'm not suggesting anybody smoke pot, but um, there's there's a decided difference there with, uh, let's say, the danger factor and the risk factor and the criminality that goes along with drug use. It's uh, If you look at the people that are in into using methamphetamine, there's a lot of criminal activity where there's a just to be fair to pot smokers, there's a lot of them out there. All they want is a Twinkie in a video game. Yeah, that's how I kind of see it, too. Um, uh, the whole drug thing isn't a really big thing as it used to be during like, the 70s or the 80s. Uh, it's kind yeah. of downtown a lot more, but there has been a uptake in uh, drug-related crime sure. in California. It's probably because we're a, a border state with um, um, the South. <laughs> yeah. And um, a lot of drugs come up from this way, and it kind of spreads from here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got ports, too. That's another thing. There's, yeah. there's more drugs coming on boats than I think people realize as well. Um, you, But you're not just into, like, the prepper side of things. You're in kind of the homesteading thing, too. So what are some steps you've taken on that? And, I mean... You, you, you know, obviously, you're probably not a property owner yet, so you're dealing with your your parents' backyard. But uh, what what kind of stuff are you doing, and are they supportive of it? Oh uh, yes, they're really supportive of having a free food. <laughs> okay, but um, pretty much, I have a basic 
um, garden with all the extra stuff. Um, I have a lot of herbs. I have a lot of carrots, onions, all that stuff. Okay. Um, actually, this year I'm actually trying a cantaloupe. Okay, cool. Should do great in your climate. Yeah. Um, actually, so far, actually, it's pretty good. But, um, but yeah, my parents do love having close to free food. Uh, we don't um, actually – we're actually trying um, a heirloom seeds this year. So it's pretty cool to try that out. Yeah, because if that works out, then you can save seeds, and next year it really is. It's not free because there's still sweat equity yeah. that goes in there, but there's no cash outlay. Mm. Well, actually, I look at it as a, um, a way to lose weight as well. <laughs> <laughs> because That's good. Um, I lose like um, I'm not serious, but I lose like um, a a pound of sweat every time I go out there. <laughs> yeah, but um, well, you're working physically and you're eating better quality food at the same time. That's that's the basic formula for getting into better shape: exercise and, and nutrition. And gardening provides a, a a means to get that without really. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to get on an exercise bike. If you get out there and work, uh, especially in this time of year and as it gets warmer in the summer, you're going you're gonna to burn some calories, and at the same time, you're producing that. And after you go through all that work to, for that food, you're going to eat it. You're not going to like do all that work, end up with that food, and then go, I'm going to go have a McDonald's cheeseburger instead. So you're going to eat the good quality food that you're producing, and you're getting the workout to go along with it. Yeah, th- th- I think that really is true. Um um, actually, my town has a lot of uh, gardening in it. We actually have a government fund um, funds for gardening, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really government funding much, but they're going to fund stuff anyway. And uh, when, you, when you look at something like that, it's, it, it's money that if they weren't funding gardening, they would be funding something like, Oh, I don't know, retirement benefits for a lifeguard or something. So it, it, it's probably good that that's available and it encourages people to take part in it. And it, it also, for the people that are very pro government, it, it sort of legitimizes it. There's a lot of people that, you know, if you tell them to be prepared, they won't do it. If you tell them to put together a 72 hour kit, they won't do it. But if you say, well, if you go to the government website, and look at it, it suggests that you have at least a 72-hour kit and a basic preparedness kit. And then they'll do it, mm-hmm. right? Then they're like, oh, gee, uh, somebody with a, a title said to do it. So uh, even though it made perfect sense before and I wouldn't do it, now I'll do it because I was told to. So I think when you have things like the government funding gardening and sustainable agriculture, there's this whole segment of society that otherwise would just see it as some kind of fringe thing that all of a sudden goes, oh, well, that's okay now. Because, you know, our, our overlords or whatever said it's okay. Yeah, that is really true. Um, a lot of people here are really pro-government. That is, yeah. that is definitely a, a California trademark. But with all the misery that, that, that's caused by this, what makes you think – what what do you what makes you think is is a young person living in this state why that's the case it is just because of what they were taught is that there's there is a, a certain quality to the California lifestyle and maybe more of that gets attributed to government than it's supposed to be or or I mean what do you think it is because I would say the same thing's true about people in Manhattan people in Boston and, and, and there's just certain spots where it just seems like 
people just are naturally receptive to the government fixing all their problems. And then there's other places, and it's not just a city versus rural thing, right? Because, you know, it, it's not anywhere near that much in, you know, Fort Worth or Dallas suburbs as it would be in the L.A. suburbs. What, what do you think it is, if you could try to put your finger on it, that makes the people of your state so much more receptive to this government will solve your problems thing? Um, well, I personally think, after some research, I, I've done a lot, but um, I do think it is a, a how we are raised a certain way. Um, okay. I don't. Um, I think a lot of people would be more self-sufficient, more into the prepping lifestyle, but they're taught that you shouldn't do that. That's like um, that guy's job <laughs> down the street. You know, can't somebody else do it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's pretty much how it is here. Um, it's. It's not completely. There is definitely pockets of self-sufficiency in California. It's hard to believe, but there is a couple of pockets out there. I think as you get into like the western part of the state, more into the mountains and all, and out of the you know L.A., San Fran, San Diego areas, that becomes more and more true. And there, even in a, in California, there is some level of truth to. People that are more rural are generally more self-sufficient because they have to be. And as soon as you st start walking down the self-sufficiency path, you start questioning the need for other people to do things for you, at least on a daily basis. I mean, I do think there are big problems, and there's there's a place for some government to to intervene in those problems to protect the rights of its citizens, etc. But the, the the propensity today seems to be that every time there's a problem, there should be a government solution for it with no consideration of, wait a minute, did government cause that problem in the first place? Um, well, in certain respects, um, respects, I really do think that the government does have a hand in screwing things up. <laughs> <clears throat> I just want more people would at least ask the question, like, you know, okay, so there's a problem, and the problem is X. How did we get there? Who Who caused that problem? Because I think in many instances... The person that caused the problem, so like when you were really young, right, if you were 10, you were out playing baseball with your buddies, and one of the, one of you guys got a hold of the baseball and broke somebody's window, right, you, you would hope that that kid becomes responsible and confesses to it and gives up their allowance until the window's fixed or whatever. So you would like for the person that caused the problem to be the person that fixes the problem. But when the person causes the problem through incompetence, right, it just seems very strange that they would be given – the ability or the authority to fix the problem that they've caused because they've already demonstrated their inability to do so. And that's like when you have the banks create the banking crisis and you give them money to fix the problem with the people that caused the problem really shouldn't have a say in how we fix it. Um, I think it's just that um, we're kind of taught that the government is kind of like, um, like helping hand. Yeah. And we should let you know. We should let it, it guide us. <laughs> Which I I'm not a huge fan of that. You know, a thought, a process. But some people here do think that a lot. So, as you've worked with getting your parents more on board, are they active in any of this at all now? Have they like started to say, you know, like this makes sense, and and started to do some of this stuff with you? Um, to a certain extent, I think I am definitely, 
um, the one pushing it a little more than anyone else in the household. Okay. But my dad has definitely um, taken up some of the reins. Well, that's good. Uh, actually, I actually got him into the 299 Days of Book Series. I think that's a great way to wake people up sometimes is give them a fictional book that's interesting to read. And a lot of times they'll go, well, whatever the big, especially in, in prepper fiction, right, they'll go, whatever the big disaster is, I don't think it would get that bad or be that extreme. And that's fine because it's some books I think that's really the case. 299 Days I think is pretty pretty accurate to what's po- possible Maybe not probable, but possible for the, the darkest you know scenarios that could occur. But what happens is when that person reads that, they get pulled into the story and they start asking themselves simple questions like, "What would we do if? How would we handle if?" And as soon as you start doing that, you start to break that 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 normalcy bias and perception bias cocoon of, "Well, that never happens here," because you know, you're talking about how you hear sirens on a daily basis. I know I had. When I was in the military and I was in Panama City, Panama, I had a huge perception bias. It wasn't normalcy bias, it was perception bias. And what I mean by that is every, you know, we'd hear gunshots in, in the city at night sometimes. And I grew up in a very, very rural part of Pennsylvania. And to hear a gunshot in the middle of the night was very normal. Nobody got upset because it was usually somebody taking out a raccoon that was going into the chicken coop or a possum that was tearing the garbage apart or something like that. And I just didn't really react to the fact that there was a gunshot because I'd grown up hearing them all my life and they weren't generally fired in anger at another human being. And it took a couple weeks to go, that's somebody shooting at somebody else. That's not a war zone or anything. It's just urban, ur- urban crime. And I think that people tend to have fairly large blocks of both this normalcy bias with everything swell and a perception bias with based on my past – what I'm seeing around me really isn't a threat to me. It might be to somebody else, but not me. Yeah, um, I think that definitely has a lot of factors in California. Um, <laughs> as an example, uh, do you remember the riots in Anaheim, California? Yeah, absolutely. It pretty much turned into a mini police state there. Yeah. A people, yeah. they didn't really, a majority of the people in California. I thought of that as kind of like a, it's their problem, not us. Yeah. Um, I kind of took a different approach where I did more research and found out all about, you know, how it got started. Now, in my opinion, I don't think that either side uh, of our parties did the easiest or best thing to do in the situation. Like, uh, you don't let a dog into a a group of people and start attacking people. Yeah, especially pregnant women. And, and little girls. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, both parties should have worked it differently and probably would and wouldn't be as big of a, a problem as it was. Um, this is my opinion. Uh, people have, you know, um, their opinion actually wasn't even near that area. But from I understand from... Following the news, it was a pretty big event. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, it was, like I said, the, the thing with the dog, and there was a dog that was set on a woman that was pregnant, uh, or maybe it was a woman with a baby. It was one or the other. 
And I, I think the only good that came out of that was people became, and I, I think like you're saying, maybe there were pockets of California people like, that's not our problem, that's somebody else's problem. But I think it, it woke a lot of people up in America to the fact that, you know, there are abuses by law enforcement. And, and as much as I support good law enforcement officers, I detest bad ones. Because you've given a person authority, you've given a person a badge, you've given a person uh, power that the average person does not have, and when that's abused, it can be extremely abused. And and that's one of those situations where it was terrible that it happened, but it sure as hell shined a light on it. Um, yeah, it, a same thing happened on when, um, I forget his name, but that rogue cop went crazy. Shout out to the other cops. I forget his name. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of who you're talking about, but it was a guy. I think they eventually caught up with him in Vegas somewhere yeah, um, at a cabin, and they killed him. Yeah, they burned his cabin when he was actually in there, which is a little overdone, in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, and, I don't know all the facts around that particular one. I got that one from kind of the peripheral view, but uh, it definitely seems like there was uh, there was some maybe uh, maybe excessive nature of that, but I'm not sure how that one transpired. Um, well, as an example, uh, they shot up a um, a van full of music people <laughs> because they were playing the guy's favorite band. Oh wow! And they also shot up a truck with two women in it because the truck looked like the guy's truck. Hmm. Yeah, so um, that kind of looks into the how are they trained? Because from what I um, from what I've read and looked, they weren't they weren't using the training if they actually had any. Yeah, and I think it also looks into the fact that no matter how much you train somebody, there's a human dynamic at play, and and the reality is the people that were pursuing that guy were very uh, they were very afraid of that guy. There was a fear factor in there because this guy was well trained. Uh, willing to kill, very good at what he did. He knew, and he knew their tactics. So it's like if you are are, are sent out as a soldier to uh, to to as a sniper, let's say, to take out a an officer of the opposition that's commanding a, a unit to destabilize it. There's one level of fear that you have in doing your job, but if you're in a counter sniper operation where the other guy that you're, you're hunting is also a sniper and uses your tactics, it's a much more likelihood that you could lose that battle. And I, I think that that's what those, those guys were dealing with. They were dealing with a guy that was well-trained. He was in great shape. He was well-armed. And he knew exactly how they would operate, and I think that put a, a tremendous amount of fear into the people pursuing him. Yeah, um, I actually think that that actually was an idea. I think he was going to try to do a terrorist-style, you know, attack on the police, and it kind of backfired on him. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, and that just starts to see. Here's what I think people don't get: these are these are isolated incidents that you think about. But if something destabilized the country, like oh, I don't know, a collapse of the currency, uh, this wouldn't be isolated incidents. I think there'd be things like this happening everywhere. And every time one happens, and it's in a situation where we can't put a lid on it right away, it's like pulling a thread out of a, a towel. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And there there'd have to be some type of a a lag between a breakdown and a, and a stabilization. Um, well, I do think that the government has kind of pushed itself off the cliff 
Yeah. But um, I do think that they would, if they were going to, you know, if there was ever a national crisis, that they would have, like, certain areas where they would have the most control at and kind of would not support the other areas. I think that's a very astute observation for a young person to make, and I think it's very accurate. And it's not we don't give a damn about those people in those other areas. It's an area of prioritization. Every time your resources become more and more strained, you have to sit down and say, where can we do the greatest good with what we have? It was like when I lived kind of very, very remote area in Arkansas, once you turned off onto the road that led to my house, there were maybe 13 people on that road, and there was one power line coming up that road. If the power went out in the area and there were down in in the county seat, there were 20,000 people without power, and we were without power, guess whose power got worked on first? Not ours. And there was nothing unfair about that. There was nothing unreasonable about that. It's a resource allocation thing. And if something was easy to fix and we happened to be in the middle and they turned us on, oh, great. But generally speaking, when we knew that the town was going to be without power for two days, we were going to go for it without five or six days. And that's just what they have. They only have so many people. They can't. They can't push a button and say, you know what? We need twenty more linemen, and spit them out. No more than the state of California can say we need, you know, fifty more state troopers now in this one spot. So those resources have to be managed and allocated. There's no way around that. Yeah, that is true. Um, it's definitely a resource to area control. Um, I think that if they, I, don't, I think California, because it's so far away from the major areas of government, would probably be on the bottom of the list. And since, oh, you mean from federal assistance? Yes, if it was yeah. nationwide. I think you might be correct. There's, yeah, it's there's not a lot of there's some strategic areas there and some military bases and all, but um, you know, you if you're being attacked. And you can't fight off the attack, and all you can do is duck and cover and hold, you know, what do you protect first? Your head and your face? Well, the head of this this entity is in the District of Columbia. Mm. So that's, and that's what you're going to protect first, is your, is your head. I do think that uh, D.C. is on the top of their list. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. um... That's where they live. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um... I kind of, like, in my head, um, I, I look at what happens if there's ever a Katrina or Sandy-style, not in the same way as a, like a hurricane, but the same impact, either through a currency um, eruption or a, you know, just like a power grid um, fallout. How would they react? And they can't. There's not enough federal or local uh, resources to support a um even a state or a 9.5 earthquake exactly yeah i mean that's that that's something that would be devastating beyond words if you if you look at a place like more oklahoma that got hit yesterday uh and i said this watching the radar <laughs> so i don't think we have to pull our uh, our interview short but i think we're going to skate the worst of this hopefully um but when you look at that and you sit there and you look at that and you go even if you're not directly affected you came there to help there's a certain level of, I, I just don't know what to do. Um, there's parts of that town where the only thing they can do is start bringing in dump trucks and excavators. And if you can think of that level of destruction 
at a much higher level, instead of it being a, a city, if it's a state, if it's a statewide disaster like that, uh, like you're saying, something like a Sandy level disaster, but you know, if we can just respect Mother Nature, we can understand that, that as big as the area was affected by Sandy, there was like a certain group of pockets that were the worst affected. And if you could imagine those pockets expanding to the entire affected area and then the periphery getting bigger, you start to get into a point where you realize that responders just can't do it. They just can't. You're totally overwhelmed at that point. And if it's economic and it's national – then it's not like, okay, if we have tornadoes here in Texas today, then Louisiana might send some people to help us, right? But if it's, if it's, if it's national, then there, there is nobody coming from two or three states away to help you because they have their own problems. Exactly. Um, like, as example, there was there ever a EMP or a CME, I think that's how you say it, right? Yep. Okay. Um, they don't even need to hit the infrastructure. If you hit, like, a, um, the cars themselves will make such a deadlock in the um, in the highway. You can't move anything around. And then how you can um, get everything done then? You know. Well, I mean, that's like one of my nightmare scenarios. Is if they, they talk about preventing terrorism, but if a couple hundred terrorists just decided to line up on major interstates across the country and just stop their cars and just get out and walk away and then do some kind of attack, and at that point. Um, it's amazing how how bound up a free society can become, um, and we don't have a plan for that. I know we don't have a plan for that, and we haven't built our infrastructure in any way that we could easily unjam that log, so to speak. We have there's no there's no what, what do you do when that happens? No one knows what to do. You know, no one has any idea what to do. Uh, no one's really been thinking about that. And I think about it this way. You're not the smartest person in the world, and you're, neither am I. No, <laughs> and, and, I wish. And if, if I can go that far, I just feel that there's people out there, and some may wish to do harm, that can go further. Exactly. Um, I don't think uh, – people think that North Korea is stupid because, you know, like, oh, we're going to take over you guys and all that stuff. Um, I don't think they're as big a threat as – I'm saying this as a um, – as a um, – sorry, um – Example, yeah, but um, I think that if they really want to do something, they probably wouldn't do a ICBM. They would probably just do either a um, a sleeper cell type thing, or they would probably do a um, an EMP off of a ship. Okay, all all lights out. Yeah, okay, exactly. Yeah. But I uh, think it's possible. Yeah. It's not. It's not my biggest concern. Yeah, but I, either, I do think but, it's possible. Yeah. They're not exactly friendly toward the United States or Iran. Yeah, or and I actually think Iran would be a bigger threat mm -hmm. uh, because they are more capable. Uh, and and one thing you always have to do in evaluating an opponent is how capable they are uh, and how radical they are. And I think that they get pretty high. And I I think that some of the Reporting on Iran, it may be even to the extreme by our own press, but I do think that they get a pretty good score on the report card for radical fundamentalism, and I think they get a much better grade for technical capability mm -hmm. uh, than a lot of people want to give them credit for. And the other thing they have that North Korea doesn't is money. Um, and you don't necessarily have to build something if you can buy it. And uh, Iran is a very technically savvy 
quite radical, quite wealthy nation. And uh, it's not that the average Iranian is wealthy, but the government is, is quite wealthy. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, um, well, I, I might think that if there was ever a invasion of Iran, I'm just thinking right now, but um, it could start World War Three since Russia and China both use Iran as a, a port system. Correct. It's how they move around in the Middle East. Um, if that wasn't there, they will be crippled economically, and it wouldn't be good for them or for us, too. Yeah, I, that that would definitely be a concern. You know, World War One to some degree had a lot to do with the mm-hmm. Middle East, and beyond what we've been taught. And this whole uh, holy war being dragged into modern warfare is the creation of the United States and the United Kingdom and manipulation during World War One. That's probably deeper than we want to go today, but it's certainly a hotbed of of the of the world. Uh, my hope is that we'll never invade them because I think that would be a really stupid thing to do. Um, on a lot of things, and hopefully, I mean, we were smart enough not to blow each other up between us and the Soviet Union for 35 years of the Cold War. Um, hopefully, we will be intelligent enough not to do that uh, this time around. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit, though, sure. as we kind of get toward wrapping sure. up today, I, I because no you're not in a public school system, but you are of school age, and you've been through that whole time. Um, there's a lot of things that I would put in a disaster kit that a young person couldn't take to school with them. What are some of the things you think that we would call school-friendly that maybe every young person out there that listens to this show uh, should make sure they have, you know, maybe at least in their, their wall locker at school? Well, I do um, say they should have at least three bottles of water because you can use that for if you're thirsty at school or if you're going to make a run for it. Okay. Um, I, um, I like the cliff parts, but uh, some people don't like those, so... Um, but, um, so maybe some protein bars are good, really good. Um, I do say a map and compass if you know how to use it, because okay. uh, at some point of having a tool, if you can't use it. Sure. Um, I, I'm so, I'm tr- trying to think. Oh, yes. Um, a tactical pin, a pin, you know, um, a tactical pin. Okay. A pen. You're talking about like a writing pen, but the tactical writing pen. Yeah. Um, so now you've got a weapon that doesn't look like a weapon. No, nope, okay. not at all. Um, it kind of acts as a tool, and if you're ever attacked by, let's say, a mass shooter, you have something. Sure, it won't be a um, an AK-47, but it's you know, it's something. They always say that any gun's better than a sharp stick, but a sharp stick's better than no stick. I, I mean, that's 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 absolutely true. My thought is some level of first aid, but you can't. There's a lot of things you can't even do there. Any, I mean, when I was a kid and I was in school, I would occasionally get headaches, and I kept a small bottle of aspirin in my locker. Um, today, I think that'll get you suspended, maybe expelled. Um, so that's out. But things I, I would expect in most schools, you wouldn't be in trouble for having band aids and, and gauze mm, yeah. uh, as, uh, as, a, as something that you had possession of. You mentioned some with water that I think people really need to think about with having water in places like at work and, and stuff like that in bottles that can be grabbed. Mm. Um, when 9-11 happened, as I watched it, I can't tell you how many times I saw somebody that just couldn't see, couldn't breathe, covered in dust, and somebody else dumping water on their face from a water bottle. Um, so that they could actually function somewhat again. And I think that's a value of water that we don't even think about. And any kind of an event that causes a lot of debris and destruction 
is uh, is is something that's likely to uh, to result in the same type of injuries and the same type of interference with our vision. And if you can't see, you're in, in a bad way in a disaster. And uh, you also can use the water and a T-shirt. You put it over your mouth and nose, and you have some way to protect yourself against smoke if there's ever a fire as, as well. If you were in a public school for the past few years, what would have been your biggest fear as a student? Would it have been a shooting? Would it have been some sort of a, a storm or some kind of riot happening while you were in school? What would have been your biggest concern? Probably a shooting because it is a it's a lot faster than okay. a storm or a riot. A riot you can hear a long time away ago. I mean, away um, for the most part. And they don't usually start in a schoolyard, but you know, maybe a college campus. But they don't usually start in a, a high school schoolyard. Doesn't usually begin a, a citywide riot. Normally, but there has been some um, past, like in um, I'm trying to think in Japan. Um, yeah, those kids who were rioting against the, um, the school because they weren't getting any more uh, lunch tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. If there had been an active shooter uh, and you were in, 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 in a school like that, mm-hmm. what would have been your instinct, uh, regardless of what you might have been told, to, to do to try to save your life and maybe the lives of people around you? Um, it depends on where I am, but if I'm in a, a classroom or maybe even a restroom, I would probably try the window first. But actually, nowadays, a lot of the high schools have bars on the windows, so that might not be really effective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a huge mistake. It gives me multiple concerns um, because I also think about fire in that mm-hmm. instance. I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, a, with a, a thing called the Ducks, and it's not the sports team. It's a it's like a tourist thing. They have them in a lot of places that have water. They're like a bus slash boat. Um, and people sit in them, and they, they'll drive you around like an old part of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and then take you out on the harbor a little bit in them. It's like a it's like a big bus that can go in the water. And they used to make them with uh, caging over the top of them, supposedly to protect people, and one of them sank uh, in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Mm. And the majority of people on it drowned because of the caging. And it just, when I hear bars on windows in a high school and I think about potential for fire. I know that they've come a long way with fire suppression and things like that, but it just it gives me that concern as well. Or in a storm where the parts of the building are collapsed, but yet you're in a part where you're somewhat safe, but you need to get the hell out, being trapped uh, and and uh, you know possibly having rescue itself cause additional cavemen. It just seems like a terrible idea. I totally agree with you on that. Um, that and um, the whole. Um Security guard aspect, I, um, I really, really think that there should be some security guards, but I don't think that they should be walking into bathrooms and stuff like that. That's a little too personal for me. Yeah, yeah. But there has been past incidents in California where um, a security guard walks into a, a changing room, and that's, in my opinion, that's a little too overboard. I think that they should stick to the hallways. Yeah. Yeah, at least you know. Or maybe go to. The, they should be there yeah. to observe abnormal behavior and to respond in an incident. That's that's what they should be doing there. And it, it can be worse. My the the school my son went to by his senior year, they actually had a a school cop 
Um, the, the city actually got tired of sending an officer to the school with such frequency. They just put one there during school hours. Um, and he, he was actually a really good guy. So it worked out, but it just is so, you know, happens. It, it could have not worked out. He could have been, he could have been, you know, some departments might use a guy that they really like because the union, we can't get rid of them. Send him over to the school, you know? Mm. Oh, uh, was he a armed cop or just he was a yeah. he was an armed officer. He was a a a Mansfield police officer hmm. um who basically was his shift was on school property um during school hours and actually an hour before and an hour after Monday through Friday. He had a regular hours job as a cop, I guess. And uh he was the same officer and the police chief made a decision that that actually made a lot more sense than rotating officers through because he would learn the school and the students in the school that were, were good kids, eventually he would win some of their confidence and they might be willing to let him know about certain things that were dangerous or important. Um, and uh, as far as I know, not only is it still going on, but I think it's the same officer. Uh, yeah, and I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I would rather have a trained police officer with all of the training that goes into getting through an academy um, in, inside a school than a security guard from Renacop.com. Yeah, uh, me too. Uh, pretty much what what they can have here is a baton, a taser, and a loud voice. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not really thrilled about that. Um, anyway. Uh, I do want to kind of wrap things up sure. now, but no I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to be with us today and give us kind of your view into this. I, I don't think there's enough people in your age bracket that are paying attention to this, and I think it's good that you're seen doing it. I think it'll make more people open to it, and it also starts to make people that are, you know, a little bit um, older maybe ask themselves the question, if this kid's smart enough to look at this, maybe I should be too. And uh, I think it might help some people to hear from uh, someone in your age bracket today. And all I can say is keep doing this. And, and my last question for you is, um, I guess you're done with school now, yeah. or soon will be. What do you want to do? What do you, where do you want to go from here, uh, both as a prepper and just as a, as, a, as a citizen? I mean, what do you, what do you foresee for yourself career-wise? Well, I don't see myself as a college student. I just okay. don't have the money, the time, or the debt. <laughs> Okay. But um, I really want to be an EMT. Okay. You're actually going through training for that right now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, actually, okay. yes, I am right now. Um, it's actually it's actually um, a lot easier than most people think. Um, it's not like a nurse nowadays where you have to go get a doctorate. Yeah, almost, yeah, yeah. I, I don't even understand why there are, N, are, are RNs anymore. I think the, the, what it takes to be an RN today, you might as well go ahead and become a nurse practitioner. Yeah, I, I kind of like a nurse aiming, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so w w if, you, if you complete the uh, EMT thing, there's a lot of opportunity, at least mm -hmm. entry-level opportunity. Might you then continue with that education and kind of go the paramedic route? Eventually, I really want to try going there because I would have a lot more skills that I can use. For work-wise and for daily-wise. And yeah. I also can get a lot more um, opportunities if I have a paramedic, a symbol, I'm on my, you know, I'm, I'm on my um, application for a job. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. 
Well, hey, man, um, the uh, the storms are just about here, so I'm going to go batten down the hatches. Uh, I do appreciate you being with us here today, Austin. Uh, no problem. Thank you for having me on. If you want me on again, I'll, I'll be on. <laughs> That'll be great, man. Uh, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll actually start a whole series here. You know, we're doing women of prepping. Maybe you'll have uh, inspired uh, youth of prepping as, as our next series. So again, thanks for being with us today, Austin. No problem. See you next time. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spirko today, along with Austin Layman, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.